functioning under the faulty and destructive worldview of secular humanism and blinded by their sin, Israel's elders reject the protection of God for the protection of an earthly pagan king. This was a revolutionary act based upon pure idolatry, which, if not remedied, would lead Israel and every other nation that revolts against God into utter destruction. This is the 21st sermon in the series Dynasty, Lordship, and Authority, an exposition on the first book of Samuel. Our Old Covenant reading coming from Jeremiah in chapter 2, beginning in verse 11 through verse 13. Three verses only. As Jeremiah preaches by the Spirit, he says this, Hath a nation changed their gods which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, saith the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Paul, by the same Spirit, writing to the church at Corinth in his second epistle, 2 Corinthians in chapter 11, 2 Corinthians in chapter 11, the first four verses, by the same Spirit, the Apostle Paul says this, Would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy, for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, ye might well bear with him. Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers. The flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever, and by his holy word is the gospel, with all of its warnings, all of its admonitions, and all of its judgments presented unto us again this day. Now desiring to be like the other nations, wanting a king like the other nations, this was a direct act of revolt, a direct act of revolution against the supreme majesty and legitimate authority of God. And that's what Israel's elders wanted. Perhaps not consciously, but deep down in the depravity of their own hearts, they wanted no longer to be under the reign of God. Believing that a man-centered, God-eradicated national model for law and governance was valid, Israel's elders and all of the people of Israel set themselves up to be in full rebellion against God. According to God's assessment, Israel's lust for a secular king was a direct rejection of God, his laws, and his judgeship. They have not rejected you, Samuel, but they rejected me that I should not reign over them. That was the problem. Israel was rejecting God on several levels. They rejected him as lawgiver. They rejected him as judge. And they rejected him as king. But they also rejected him to their hurt 
They also rejected him as prophet, priest, and savior. Rejecting God in one arena means that you reject God in other arenas, every other arena. You cannot have God, the Lord Jesus Christ, as Savior and not have Him as Lord and King. You cannot reject God as your priest, your high priest, and still have Him as your lawgiver, or vice versa. He must be lawgiver, judge, king, prophet, priest, and Savior. And wanting, however, to be like the other nations, Israel was adopting a pluralistic world and life view which was based upon the pagan idea of polytheism. Pluralism and polytheism places all religious ideas and views on par with biblical Christianity. In other words, all roads lead to salvation, all roads lead to Christ, all roads lead to heaven. You could be a Buddhist, a Muslim, you could be a Shinto, you can do anything you like because they all just are just mishmashed together. What Israel wanted was based upon a political, legislative, and judicial pluralistic as well as a cultural pluralistic model. And their action at its core was idolatry. The consequences of this act of idolatrous rebellion, which was an act of blatant revolution, would result in oppressive tyranny, chaos, and a system of socialism where the state would function as God. They would become the elders, the state, Israel's nation. They would become the lawgiver. They would become the judge. They would become the king. And they would give all of that power to one man to rule over them, a pagan king. And that king was going to be Saul. The question that we must ask, however, is this. How in the world did God's people, national Israel, arrive at this secular, humanistic worldview? certainly didn't happen overnight. The elders didn't wake up one, one morning and say, gee, maybe we'll just have a paradigm shift and, and trust in ourselves. It didn't happen overnight. So then, what were the steps that Israel took the steps of apostasy that brought them to the total rejection of God to embrace an idolatrous, man-centered vision of society. Of course, this is not the only question of historical importance, but is an illustrative lesson for us in our own modern era. So when we look at the historical account of Israel, we have to recognize that this has lessons for us today. And so the real question is this. What steps were taken in America and within Western civilization that has unraveled our Christian moorings, bringing us to the brink of destruction? And make no mistake about it, we are on the brink of destruction. And how is the church directly culpable for America's cultural devastation? So that's the question. What steps were taken? How did this happen? Incrementally, what happened? Has the modern church actually been digressing along the apostate lines of Israel, historical Israel, without even knowing it? And I believe it has. And so we must honestly explore how our nation and the church in particular, because of course I put the blame solely at the foot of the church and the apostate clergymen. So 
how did our nation and the church in particular misstep and what remedies, therefore, must be employed to regain our fidelity and blessedness with God? So to put it very simply, what idols have we embraced? What idols have the Christian community embraced without even knowing it, which brought about God's frowning providence upon Christendom and the rest of the world? Now we have to admit that the entire world, it's not just our nation, it's the entire world. It is now in an uproar as we see more and more nations confederating against the Lord and against His Christ. So in order to examine these idols, two sources in conjunction with the Scriptures are of great importance. The first, Herbert Schlossberg's classic work, and some of you I know are very familiar with this work, Idols for Destruction, and a more recent work, by a theologian and a commentator, Christopher Wright, called Here Are Your Gods. Schlossberg's first identifying remarks identify the idol of history. He says this, The idolaters of history exalt an age, past, present, or future, or a process, or an institution, or a class, or a trend, and make it normative. For example, whenever we look to the good old days as a time of perfection, a time of, of happiness, of godliness, or to the political era of, of Reagan, I, I hear politicians say, we've got to go back to the era of Reagan. Maybe soon they'll say we have to go back to the, the days of Donald Trump. So whenever people look to those good old days, as the norm, or the more perfect way, or a pristine time period of history, we have made history, that historical period, an idol. The good old days, if you really want to look back at the good old days, they're not so good. At least not from a biblical perspective. Could they have been better? Maybe. But they should never be looked at as the norm. And yet, when we examine those periods biblically, we find that it cannot and never should be considered the biblical norm or even a place where we want to go back to. We don't want to go back to the days of Reagan. We don't want to go back to the days of this president or that era or the other era. We don't want to do that because that is not the biblical norm. We don't want to return there since those eras, those historical eras, did not accurately represent the kingdom of God. As Christians, we want to represent the kingdom of God faithfully. But when we return to those historical epochs, we become idolaters. History cannot create, nor can it identify a biblical norm, since a biblical norm comes from outside of history, directly from the revelation of God. Now consider how the Israelites fell into this trap when they looked back at the leeks and the onions and the fish that they had in Egypt, they were idolaters. They were in the wilderness and all of a sudden, oh, it was so much better in Egypt. It was not good. It was not better. They began to consider their past history in Egypt as normal and well satisfying even, forgetting entirely that they had been slaves to an oppressive pharaoh. Historical idolatry completely blinded their minds to the truth of the historical situation that they had faced. 
This mindset is no different from the mindset of non-Christians. Schlossberg then points to humanity as another idol, which is probably the core of all other idolatrous sins, since it places man, humanity, at the center of the universe. Let me state plainly, man is not the center of the universe, but man wants to be the center of the universe. You parents, understand this and understand it well and never forget this. Your child wants to be the center of the universe. Man, by his fallen nature, wants to be the center of the universe. And once man becomes the center of the universe, he then can become the savior of the human race. Note how Israel trusted in Egypt and her Pharaoh. And this is just almost mind-boggling. You think about how Israel was so oppressed under Egypt, and yet they wanted to go back. So what does God say? Isaiah 31, 1 and following. Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help and stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. Yet he is also wise and will bring evil and will not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evildoers. Speaking about God, what he's going to do, rise up against the evildoers and against the help of them that work iniquity. Now the Egyptians, notice what God is saying here in verse 3. Now the Egyptians are men. In other words, they're just men. There's no salvation there. There's no strength there. There's no wisdom there. We shouldn't look to them there. They're just men. Now the Egyptians are men and not God. And they're horses, flesh, and not spirit. When the Lord shall stretch out his hand, both he that helpeth shall fall and he that is hoping shall fall down, and they all shall fail together. That's what happens when we trust in man. Failure across the board. Idolatry results in the idea that only man has the solution to humanity's problems, and if he cannot solve those problems, no one can. For man who places himself at the center of the universe, God is ousted from any consideration whatsoever whenever humanity becomes an idol. Notice what Herbert Schlossberg says. He says, The idea of humanity as a deity is seldom avowed openly, but rather is expressed by ascribing to man attributes of God, sovereignty or autonomy, complete rationality and moral perfection. When we look at the state in its recent mandates. They believe that they are omniscient. They know everything. They know what's best. Why? Because they have the idol of science to tell them what is best, what is healthy, what is not healthy. They also are omnipotent. They will enforce it by law. And they think they're omnipresent. So they have people watching. We have self-censorship now. They have taken upon themselves the attributes of God, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotent. This focus on humanity is akin to man's focus upon his reason, knowledge, and rationality. Again, Schlossberg further explains, he says, all systems of thought rest on assumptions or beliefs. An assertion about God is not logically different from a physicists' assumption that the physical world actually exists apart from anyone's mind. 
There can be no simple appeal to the facts, for factuality cannot be considered apart from a philosophy by which the facts are interpreted. In other words, all facts are interpreted facts. There's no such thing as a a fact without interpretation. So man will look at a fact and interpret it any way he likes because he is God. So once mankind begins from the foundation of his own thoughts, his own fallible and feeble thoughts, he becomes dependent upon those thoughts. He becomes dependent upon his own reason. Not looking to the revelation, the absolute truth of God, not relying on God, relying on himself, which is fallibility, he becomes dependent on that fallibility. The problem here is that man's thoughts and all his reasons are totally fallen. And they can never lead him into total truth. And therefore, man's truth, as he sees it, becomes his idol. I love when people say, I'm doing such and such and thus and thus. And one might ask, well, why are you doing that? And they would say, well, I've prayed about it. Yes, but what you're saying you're going to do is contrary to the revelation of the Word of God. Yes, but I prayed about it. And what they're actually saying is, my truth is dependable apart from the Word of God. And therefore, because I believe as an idolater that my truth is more dependable than God's truth, I will follow my own truth. So his truth becomes his idol. So what we find today is whenever a political power dictates a truth, which they do all the time with mandates and laws, they dictate this is right, this is wrong, this is true, this is error, this is safe, this is dangerous. So whenever a power dictates a truth, it is enforced either by law or might, whether or not it is in fact true or not. Because they said it's true, because they said it's right, because they said it's safe, that's how it has to be. Why? Because they said it. The veracity of a mandate is rarely considered as long as it harmonizes with what man believes is true. Now to this, author Christopher Wright adds man's idolatrous worship of the created order. The tree huggers. He observes it this way. He says, in the physical creation, It was well observed in Israel that some people regarded the heavenly bodies as gods and worshipped them, while others did the same to creatures on the earth. Now Job, a faithful worshipper of the true God, confesses that if he ever fell prey to creature worship or the worship of creation, it would be a sin. Very clearly. If he ever said, we need to tax so that we could save the whales or anything of that nature, it would be sin. Notice what he says, Job 31, 26. 26, 27, and 28. If I beheld the sun when it shined or the moon walking in brightness and my heart had been secretly enticed or my mouth had kissed my hand as to genuflect, in other words, This also were iniquity to be punished by the judge, for I should have denied the God that is above. Creature worship, 
Creation worship is idolatry and it is sin. If we were to consider Job's concern and apply it to our modern day, he would be condemning the addiction to climate control, the saving of the planet, of course the saving of whales, the investigation of the mating habits of the pill bug as forms of worship or whatever. All of these things would be condemned out of hand. Or the migration of the monarch butterfly, or the migration of the turtle, or whatever. Rather than acting as stewards over the earth, and appreciating and loving the earth and caring for the earth, the created order has become the focus of mankind to the point of becoming an idol. And this fixation on creation is purely pagan. It's a pagan practice which both ancient Israel and many Americans even now embrace. There's nothing new under the sun. The worship of creation, whether it was the celestial bodies of heaven or non-human animals, was originally an Egyptian practice and it was probably introduced to Israel while they sojourned there. And notice, once you're in the mix, you can't help but being influenced by it. In other words, it was purely pagan and Israel was seduced just by living among it. And that's why it's so important for us to make sure we maintain a biblical world and life view so that we're not ensnared by it. They brought that understanding that they learned in Egypt into Canaan and maintained their idolatrous position. These practices were particularly condemned by God in Psalm 106. Notice, 106.34 and following. They did not destroy the nations concerning whom the Lord commanded them, but were mingled among the heathen and learned their works. And they served their idols, which were a snare unto them. Yea, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters unto devils, and shed innocent blood, even the blood of their sons and of their daughters, whom they sacrificed unto the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus were they defiled with their own works, and went whoring with their own inventions." That is every nation that forgets God. That describes every nation that forgets God. It describes our nation. The nation here that we so love. These idolatrous practices made Israel indistinguishable from the heathen. American Christianity at many points is indistinguishable from wicked pagans. Schlossberg adds mammon as another idol, particularly of our modern era. He says this, Idols of mammon invite us to place our hopes on wealth. Tell us that taking is better than giving. Tempt us to covet what our neighbor has. Convince us that we have been wronged because we do not possess as much as we desire. And finally, pervert the sense of justice that alone can preserve peace. If we continue to worship mammon, the unrest and discontent that mark our society now are only a sample of the destruction that is to come. Insatiable greed, placing infinite claims on finite resources, can have no other end. This is now epidemic in our nation. Everyone, everyone, especially most recently, everyone now is clamoring for more, clamoring for stimulus money, clamoring for welfare money, clamoring for reparation money, and whatever money is freely available without honestly working for it, that's what we want. 
a graveyard spiral down. We have lost all sense of reality, all sense of biblical integrity. The passion behind this is rooted in trusting money for the solution to the individual's or in some cases the world's problem. Just think about it. Whenever a problem is either uncovered or manufactured, the answer is just throw more money at it and it'll be remedied. The school has problems. Give them more money. The county has problems. The nation has problems. The poor have problems. This one has problems. The other one, just give them more money. Money's going to solve it all. But more money, mind you, never solved anything. And yet, mankind trusts money. They believe that if they have more money, everything will go well. But why trust money? What's the lure? Well, to be sure, money does translate into power. But that's just another idol. Money and power. What do they do? They seduce men and women into thinking that they're wholly trustworthy and through either money or power or both, they can be insulated from harm. And these things become his or her trust or his or her idol. It becomes God to them. The proverb writer tells his sons, give me enough money just to be content because if I have too much, I might forget you. Christopher Wright explains it this way. He says, so whenever we aim at financial security to insure against all future threats or pour vast quantities of the wealth to the planet and its nations into the gaping maw of military security or just become personally obsessive about every latest fad that promises immunity from ill health or the fear of physical aging, these then become very costly gods indeed. The more we trust in them, the more we spend on them and vice versa. Now by the time of Saul, the elders had completely departed from the living God to abject idolatry. And it was at that time that God brings upon them the tyranny of the apostate Saul. And if you remember, Samuel was telling them that this is going to be traumatic and destructive to the point of murderous. Because God was angry. But why? So what? God was angry. Why was God so angry? Why couldn't Israel just worship another God and the true God? Why, why couldn't they share? What were the reasons why God's response was so dreadfully hard? In order to answer that question, we have to ask, what does idolatry result in? How does it affect God? Does it affect God? How does it affect God's people and the people of the nations? Why was God so angry? So let's consider what idolatry results in and its effect on God and the human race. Now the scripture portrays idolatry as fundamentally rebellious and the suppression of the truth. Idolatry is alienating, it's darkening, it's degrading, it's divisive, and it's deadly. Idolatry is the destroyer of worlds. All kinds of worlds. 
the world of the individual, the world of the marriage, the world of the family, the world of the children, the world of the culture, the world of the nation, the worlds of finance, the worlds of politics. It is a destroyer of worlds. Idols deprive God of his legitimate glory by taking man's attention away from God and placing it upon a worthless thing. Jeremiah was indicting Israel, paying more attention to gods that were no gods than to the true God. Idols also distort the true image of God and replace his holy perfection with something that is tainted and fallible. And since idols are worthless and possess no power, the only thing an idol can do is disappoint. They're very disappointing. And this is especially true when men are idolized. Whenever a man is idolized and then he's shown to be a mere man, of course, there's disappointment. Those that held him in high esteem are quickly disappointed. But it's their own fault because they were idolizing a man or idolizing a preacher or idolizing a president or idolizing this thing or that thing. Idols are also unable to save anyone and anything. They are absolutely useless. Consider the condemnation against Israel for their insane, and I do say insane, idolatry because it's madness. In Jeremiah 2, God explains how the pagans rarely depart from their false gods. In God's indictment against Israel, he contrasted the fidelity of the pagans that would not leave off their gods, even though they are false and cannot save them, with Israel who had the true God, and yet they easily traded him for idols. And we saw this in our Old Covenant reading. Hath the nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which has no profit. Christopher Wright gives some considerations that he believes all Christians must take notice of. And he begins with political idolatry. No political party can save us. Even if we were able to elect a Christian man to the office of president, he cannot save us nor could he usher in the kingdom of heaven. Now while he may assist in establishing a righteous nation, he cannot be the savior. Now, does that mean we shouldn't elect Christian men to high positions of office or local? No, no, no. Get them in. Get them in. Get them in. Let God use them. But even the judges of Israel, as, as glorifying as they were, as glorious as they were, as faithful and obedient as they were, they still had flaws. Everyone's got warts. Only Christ can save. And only Christ can bring about the completion, fulfillment, and the perfection of the kingdom of heaven. And so extreme nationalism can be very dangerous. When Jeroboam established the northern kingdom, he decided to bolster his own kingdom by equating it with the kingdom of God. How many people today even say America? It's like the kingdom of God and it was the city on a hill. Well, that was Witherspoon wanted and it would have been nice and if we would have continued, maybe we would have been better off than we are now. I'm sure of it. But he wanted his kingdom to be equated with the kingdom of God. And so what he did was he fabricated a plan. He hatched a strategy. He fabricated idols. He placed two bulls at either edge of his kingdom and claimed that these represented the true God, Yahweh. He was afraid that if the people traveled to Jerusalem where the true temple was, 
that the people might gravitate toward his brother Rehoboam and rebel against him. And so fearing for his life, he tells them that they needed not to travel so far to Jerusalem since they could very easily worship these two bulls which would amount to the true worship. And what he was establishing was a national religion based on idols. Right comments. He says, Jeroboam was using God to serve the security of his own state. Rather than leading his people in the service and worship of the living God, in obedience to the standards of covenant law, he blatantly used the name and symbols of God to bless and glorify the state and the political establishment that he himself had set up. By using Christian slogans, Christian symbols to establish America without adopting God's covenant and law is akin to what Jeroboam did during the days of the kings of Israel. I marvel that so soon the people of Christ, those professors of religion, were willing to leave off the community of the saints to worship, quote-unquote, virtually. The state had set up Jeroboam's two bulls and told the Christian, worship virtually. Now, while it did take almost a century later for God to destroy the northern kingdom, he did so during the reign of Jeroboam II when Amos preached destruction on that idolatrous and presumptuous nation. And that, if what we have before us is not remedied by the church, will be our history. Because of presumption, there will be destruction. Wright observes this. He says, in the United Kingdom, Many historic churches have military emblems and regimental flags displayed, sometimes alongside the communion table. I have said before that I do not reject legitimate patriotism within biblical limits, but when the message is conveyed by imperial symbols of war beside the heartbeat of the gospel of the self-sacrifice of the Prince of Peace, I do. He continues, In the United States, Many churches prominently fly the stars and stripes. In one church, it stood as the national flag and was processed into the church at the start of the service along with the Bible and Holy Sacraments. In other words, they were proceeding, they brought the flag in and they put it, and if you've seen this before, you've seen it where at one end of the sanctuary is the Christian flag and the other end is the American flag with the eagle on top, and the gold fringes, which is a military war flag. He continues, It is hard to imagine early Christians gathering for worship around symbols of the Roman Empire or its regimental eagles. Christians today see the Bible in a number of ways. How do you see the Bible? What is the Bible to you? Well, Christians today... You ask a Christian how they see the Bible, you get all kinds of answers. For some, it's a book of rules, ethical standards to live by. And for those, that's probably that's all it is. For others, it's a book of promises. Now, God has promised this, and he has promised that, and his promises are trustworthy. But for those that only see the Bible as a book of promises for them to live by, they have inverted the real reason for the promises. You see, the promises of God 
are not for Christians to merely meditate upon for their spiritual nourishment, but rather they are there so that the Christian can engage in the advancement of the kingdom without fear that God will leave them alone in the midst of the battle. In other words, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now get out there and go to work. So the promises are not so that we we can feel good about ourselves. They're for God's glory. Others use the scriptures as a personal devotional tool. But here again, the Christian, when he uses the Bible as a devotional tool, the Bible is all about himself. This is all about me. This is all about my piety. This is all about pietism. It's not about Christ at the center. It's not about the kingdom mission. It's about my devotions. And man again becomes the center of the universe. Wright explains it this way. He says, The trouble is, many Christians are simply living in the world's story, world's story, not word story, world's story, and trying to make the Bible somehow relevant to that. In other words, they shape all their assumptions and decisions along the same lines that the rest of the people around us in the world do. But they try to add a dose of biblical gloss by applying biblical verses here and there. We sincerely try to apply the Bible to, quote-unquote, my life, which sounds fine, but actually assumes that my life is the center of reality, to which the Bible has to be somehow fitted into our life in a subjective way. Or sometimes worse, we use the Bible selectively to reinforce our own personal aspirations, social and political views or delusions. We have simply lost the biblical plot. We have forgotten the story that we are in. So instead of applying the Bible to our lives, we should be applying our lives to the Bible, to the Bible story of redemption and kingdom advancement. Wright adds this, he says, We should ask, how can I apply my life, my little life, in the here and now of this generation into the great story of the Bible? How can I live in such a way as to fit into this story to participate in what God is doing instead of having God fit into what I am doing? And that's really what happens. We try to fit God into what we're doing instead of trying to fit into God's doing and preparing for all He plans for the future. He continues, How can my life my choices, my behavior, my thoughts and actions belong within this great story with some measure of worthiness and consistency. So instead of having God fit into what we are doing, we must fit into what God is doing. That's the question. Simply put, the question to us is, are you involved in the mission of God or are you forcing God into your mission? Are you involved in the mission of God or are you forcing God into your mission, your agenda? Jesus told the apostles, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. My meat is to do the Master's will. This was a definitive mission commandment. It is a commission that begins and ends with God and everything in between is with God. It is called operational regeneration. Make a note of that term. In other words, as a result of true regeneration by the Spirit of God being washed in the blood of Christ, as a result of that true regeneration, the life of the recipient becomes operational kingdom word. 
not simply philosophically kingdom-minded, but operationally kingdom-minded. That's what separates the men from the boys, if you will. Operational regeneration is a living activity that is evident in everything that one does. The new birth commits the individual to a life of service to the cause of the kingdom. If we are no different than the non-Christian of the world around us or the elders of Israel that wanted a law system and a governing system like the pagan nations of the world, then we are part of the problem. Wright gives this challenge. He says, the people of God either walk in the way of the Lord or walk in the ways of other gods. There's no middle ground. You either do it God's way or you don't. Israel, sadly, they failed to walk in the way of the Lord, their God, Yahweh. And the more they walked in the way of the Canaanites, the more they forgot how to walk in the way of God. And that's a dynamic. The more you walk in the ways of the world, the more you forget just how to walk in the ways of God. Because you're so polluted by the ways of the world. Okay, so what are we going to do? What do we do about this? What should we do? Because we have to do something. Number one, re-examine your life's purpose and ask, is God a part of my life or am I a part of His? Is His mission my mission or am I using Him to fulfill my life's mission? Secondly, search the Scriptures and reacquaint yourself with the mission of the Kingdom of God. Ask yourself, what is the mission of God? And how do I become part of His mission? Third, study the history of faithful men and learn how they advanced the kingdom. Read of the ancients. Read about the reformers, the Puritans, the covenanters. Learn from faithful contemporaries. Find out how did they structure their lives for the glory of God. Number four, pray. Pray that God would reveal His mission to you so that you may become involved in His mission forsaking your own mission. You've got to put off your own mission and you've got to put on the mission of Christ. But if you're not willing to put off your own mission, then you can never just add God's mission to your mission. Number five, repent. You might think that you've got it all together. You might think that, yeah, yeah, I'm reading the scriptures, I'm reading books, I'm teaching, I'm teaching my kids and I got it all together. Repent of that thought. Ask for God's forgiveness since we all have strayed from the true calling of God in one way or another and exchanged the gospel of the kingdom because that's what we've done for the gospel of me and my salvation. We've exchanged the gospel of the kingdom for the gospel of me and my Bible. Repent. I remember that movie... Schindler's List, true story, dramatized. Schindler did so much to save so many Jews that were being exterminated by the Nazis. He did more than any man could ever imagine that he could do. And yet, at the end, he thought he never did enough. That's how it should be with us do everything that we could possibly do and pour ourselves out for the glory of the gospel of Christ and then at the end say, I, I could have done more. Because you could always do more. And finally, after you search the scriptures, 
after you re-examine your life, search the scriptures, study the history of faithful men, pray and repent, act. Take action. Do something. I don't care what it is. Just do something. Because reformation does not end in contemplation. Reformation ends in action. Ask God, what can I do? I I don't know. I, I feel I'm useless. What can I do? And God will show you what to do. Begin advancing the mission of God in your life. Get organized. Have a well thought out plan as to what you are going to accomplish in your life for the kingdom of God. What do you want people to say about you when you are dead? Write out a biblical mission statement for yourself. Write it out. Because if you don't write it out, it'll just go into the, into the air and you'll never think about it again. Write it out and then rehearse it in your mind. Begin with how you want to be remembered and what legacy you want to leave and then examine it to see if it's really Christ-centered and not me-centered. Because if Christendom is to advance, it will only do so if the Christian church actually becomes active in the advancement of the kingdom of Christ. But if the church remains silent, if you remain silent, if we remain silent, we will be at a point when the candle of the church will almost go out. It will be a time of great darkness and great sorrow. May God be pleased to give us that mission that we would continue in the work of Christ and not in the work of ourselves. We will continue that next time when we examine Israel's failure to establish the kingdom of God when we return to the first book of Samuel and this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.